Chapter 10 of A Man Obsessed by Alan E. Norse. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 10 Jacques and Harpo were waiting for him at the head of the escalator. He nodded and followed them down the corridor to the small jitney car that was waiting. All set? All set. The guards are all busy up in in-unit putting out a fire. They won't be down to bother us for a couple of hours." The nasty Frenchman scowled disdainfully. "'But you'll have to hurry. When they come back we'll have a time starting them again.' Jeff nodded. "'That should be enough. Then maybe we'll have other things to occupy the guards tonight.' The jitney started with a lurch and a squawk. Harpo handled the controls, running the little car swiftly down the corridor. It swung suddenly into a pitch-black tunnel took an abrupt dip and began to spiral downward at a wild rate. Jeff grabbed the handrail and gasped. "'It's a long way down,' Harpo chuckled, sitting back in the darkness. "'The archives hold the permanent records of the entire Hoffman Center since it was first opened. That's why it's a vault, so that bombing won't destroy it. It's one of the most valuable tombs in history.' The jitney shot out into a lighted corridor. Jeff swallowed and felt his ears pop. The little car whizzed through a maze of tunnels and corridors. Finally it settled down to the floor before the heavy steel doors at the end of a large corridor. Without a word Harpo moved down to the end of the corridor and drew the jitney car with him. He opened the motor hood, started pawing around busily inside. The nasty Frenchman chuckled. If anyone wanders by, that jitney alarm siren goes off and Arpo's just a poor technician trying to make it stop." The little man walked quickly to the steel doors. "'It's not the first time I've had to work on these,' he said slyly. "'We wanted in here a few months ago, when they were trying to put a shakedown deal on some of us. I worked out the combination pattern then. It took me three days. They changed the combination periodically, of course, but the pattern is built into the lock.' He opened a small leather case and placed an instrument up against the lock. A long, thin wire was poised and ready in his other hand. Jeff heard several muffled clicks. Then Jacques inserted the wire sharply into something. An alarm bell above the door gave one dull, half-hearted clunk and relapsed into silence, as though changing its mind at the last moment. A moment later the little Frenchman looked up and winked, and the steel vault door rolled slowly back. The place smelled damp and empty. Three walls and half of the fourth were occupied with electronic file controls. The bulk of the room was taken up with tables, microviewers, readers, recorders, and other study apparatus. There was nothing small in the room. The whole place breathed of bigness, of complexity, of many years of work and wisdom, of many lives and many, many deaths. It was a record room that many lives had built. Jeff moved in toward the control panel. He located the master coder and sat down in a chair before it, his eyes running over it carefully, sizing up the mammoth filing machine. And then, quite suddenly, he felt terribly afraid. A knot grew in his stomach and a cold sweat broke out on his forehead. A face was again looming up sharply in his mind. It was the huge, ghoulish face that had come to him again and again in his dreams the face full of hatred and viciousness, pale and inhuman. It was the face of a heartless, pointless, bloody assassin. 
But was that all? Or was there more to that face, more to that dream than Jeff had ever suspected? Something deep in his mind stirred, sending a chill down his spine. His hand trembled as he ran a hand over the control panel. A ghost was there at his elbow, a ghost that had followed him on this nebulous trail of bitterness and hatred for so long, a trail which would end in this very room. He shook his head angrily. There was no time for panic, no time for ruminating. He picked the panel code combination for the mercy men and the research unit. Then he computed the coding for Conroe's name. With trembling fingers he typed out the coding, punched the tracer button and sat back, his heart thumping wildly. He watched the receiver slot for the tell-tale file cards and folio. The file squeaked and chattered and whirred and moaned, and finally the pale instruction panel lighted up. No information. Jeff blinked, a chill running up his back. These files were the final appeal. The information had to be here. Quickly he computed a description coding, fed it in and waited again in mounting tension. Still no information. He picked the code card from his pocket, the card from the Mercy Men's file up above, the card with the Hoffman Center's own picture of Conroe on it. He fed it into the photoelectric tracer, marked in the necessary coding for an unlimited file search. Any person resembling this description in any way, any information on... Again he sat back, breathing heavily. The whirring went on and on. Then, inexorably, the little panel flickered and spelled out a single word. Unknown. Jeff choked. He stared at the panel, his whole body shaking, and went through the coding again, step by step, searching for an error, finding none. It was impossible, it couldn't be so, and yet the files were empty of information. As though there had never been a Paul Conroe there was not even a reference card to the card in the Mercy Men's files. He stared at the panel, his mind rebelling in protest. Nothing, not even a trace in the one place where there had to be complete information. He had come to a dead end, the last dead end there could be in the Hoffman Center. The nasty Frenchman lit a cigarette and watched Jeff from bright eyes. No luck? No luck said Jeff brokenly. We're beaten. That's all. But there must be. Well, there's not. Jeff slammed his fist down on the table with a crash, his eyes blazing. There's not a trace, not a whisper of the man in here. There has to be, and there's not. It's the same as every other time. A blank wall. Blank wall after blank wall. I'm getting tired of them so miserably tired of running into blind alley after blind alley. He stood up, his shoulders sagging. I'm too tired of it to keep it up. There's no point to gambling any longer. I'm getting out of here while I've got a whole skin. Maybe you've got more time than you think, the nasty Frenchman eyed him in alarm. This is no time to run out. It may be weeks before you're assigned. Jeff stared at him. Well, I know one way to find out. He walked over to the control panel, stabbed an angry finger at the master coder, picked out the code for J. Meyer. They'll have me here, too, he snapped. The whole work's about me. 
what the testing set, what they're going to do to me. That's one way to find out." Quickly he typed out the coding, punched the tracer button. The machinery whirred again, briefly. Then there was a click in the receiver slot, and another, and another. Jeff blinked at it as the microfilm rolls continued to fall down. Then he reached out to the single white card which fell on top of the rolls. His fingers were damp as he took the card. His own death warrant, perhaps. He glanced at the card and froze. His head began pounding as if it would burst. J. Meyer he had punched in, and that was what the card said. But not Geoffrey Meyer. The card held a photo of a middle-aged, gray-haired man, and the typewritten name at the top said, Jacob Meyer. And the picture was a photograph of his father's face. It was impossible, incredible, but he stared at the card in his hand. It did not disappear. It stayed there. It still said, Jacob Meyer. It still showed the beloved features of his father, staring up at him blankly from the card. His father! His heart pounded as he stared at the brief typewritten notation below the picture. Born 11 August 2050, Des Moines, Iowa. Married 3 December 2077. Wife died childbirth 27 November 2078. One son Geoffrey, born 27 November 2078. Then below were a series of dates. Date of bachelor's degree, date of master's and doctorate, associate professor of statistics at Rutgers University, 2079 to 2084, joined Government Bureau of Statistics in 2085. Finally, at the bottom of the card were a long series of reference numbers to microfilm files. Jeff sank down in the chair, his mind spinning helplessly. He turned dazed eyes to the nasty Frenchman. "'You might as well go,' he said. "'I've got to do some reading.' Feverishly, he scooped up the microfilm rolls, carried them to the nearest reader, twisted the spool into the machine, and bent his eyes to the viewing slot, his heart pounding in his throat. The first roll was a long, detailed series of abstracts of statistical papers, all written by Jacob A. Meyer, Ph.D., all covered with marginal notes in a scrawling, spidery hand, and initialed R.D.S. The papers covered a multitude of studies. Some dealt with the very techniques of statistical analyses themselves, others were concerned with specific studies that had been done. The papers were written in scholarly manner, perfectly well documented, but the marginal notes found fault continually, both with the samplings noted and the conclusions drawn. Jeff read through some of the papers, and he scowled. They dated over a period of the four years when his father had been teaching statistics. There were several dozen papers, all with marginal notes, none of which made much sense to Jeff. With a sigh, he pulled out the roll, fed in another. This one seemed a little more rewarding. It was a letter, signed by Roger D. Schimmel, M.D., dated almost twenty years before, addressed to the Government Bureau of Statistics. Jeff's eyes skimmed the letter briefly, catching words here, phrases there. As Director of Research at the Hoffman Center, considered it my duty to bring this unbelievable condition to the attention of higher authorities. Naturally, a statistical analysis must be made of the matter before it can be concluded that there has been a marked increase in mental illness of any kind in the general populace. 
having followed Dr. Meyer's analyses in the past with much interest, and would be pleased if he could come to the Hoffman Center within the next month to commence such a study. There was nothing tangible, nothing that made sense. Jeff shuffled through the rolls, popped another into place in the reader. This time he read much more closely a letter from an unknown person to Dr. Schimmel. It was dated almost a year later than the former letter. This note referred in several places to the almost unbelievable results of the statistical study done several months ago. It also referred to the investigation just concluded of possible disturbing elements in the analysis. The final paragraph Jeff read through three times, his eyes nearly popping. There was no doubt that the data was sound and properly collected. Naturally, the results of the analysis followed mathematically from the data. It seemed, therefore, that we were dealing with a disturbing factor heretofore quite unsuspected. Our investigation leads us to the unavoidable, though hardly credible, conclusion that Dr. Jacob A. Meyer was himself the sole disturbing factor in the analysis. No other possibility fits the facts of the picture. We recommend, therefore, that an intensive study of Dr. Meyer's previous work be undertaken, with a view to answering the obvious questions aroused by such a report. We also recommend that this be undertaken without delay." At the top of the letter, in red letters, was the government's careful restriction, top secret. Another roll went into the reader. This held the letterhead of a New York psychiatrist. Jeff's eyes caught the name, and he read eagerly, Dear Dr. Schimmel, we have studied the microfilm records you posted to us with extreme care, and undertaken the study of Jacob Meyer, as instructed. Although it is impossible to make a positive diagnosis without interviewing and examining the patient in person, we are inclined to support your views as stated in your letter. As to the possibility of other more remarkable phenomena occurring, we are not prepared to comment. But we must point out that this man almost certainly undergoes a regular manic-depressive cycle, may be dangerously depressed, even suicidal, in a depressive low, and may endanger himself and others in a manic period of elation. Such a person is extremely dangerous and should not be allowed freedom to go as he chooses." Jeff looked up, tears streaming from his eyes. His whole body was wet with perspiration. He could hardly keep his balance as he stood up. What lies! The idea that his father could have been insane, that he could have falsified any sort of statistical report that he had done, it was impossible, a pack of incredible lies. But they were here, on the files of the greatest medical center on the face of the earth, lies about his father, lies that Jeff couldn't even attack because he could not understand them. The door swung open sharply, and the nasty Frenchman stuck his head in, panting. "'Better be going,' he snarled. "'There are guards coming.' His head disappeared abruptly, and Jeff heard Harpo's voice bellow at him. "'Come on! We've got to run!' Jeff's legs would hardly move. He felt numb, as though a thousand nerve-centers had been suddenly struck all at once. He fumbled, pouring the microfilm rolls into his pockets, his mind whirling. There was no sense to it, no understanding, no explanation. Somehow, he knew, there was a tie-in between these records of his father, taken so long ago, and the absence of any information on Paul Conroe in the files. But he couldn't find the link. 
He ran out into the hall, leaped into the jitney car. He hung on for dear life as it sped through the tunnel, into the blackness of the spiral once again. Suddenly, in his ears, another sound exploded, the loud, insistent clang of an alarm bell. Harple looked at the nasty Frenchman and then at Jeff. Uh-oh, he said softly. They're on to something. There's a general muster. We better get back to quarters, and fast. He shoved the controls ahead a bit further, and Jeff felt the car leap ahead. Finally, it settled down in the quarters corridor. They leaped out, Harpo set the dials for the car to return, and the three men ran for their quarters, the bell still clanging in their ears. In Jeff's mind, thoughts were tumbling as he ran. Hopeless thoughts, uneasy thoughts. As he had ridden up, little chinks had fallen into place in his mind. Little spaces, that he had never understood, suddenly began to make sense, adding up to questions, big questions. It was too pat, too easy that Conroe should come in here and vanish as if he had never been alive. Things didn't happen that way, not even for Conroe. Other things came into focus, slowly, flickering briefly through his mind, things that had happened years before, things that seemed, suddenly, to mean something. Then, just as they came into focus, they flickered back out of reach again. They were incidents like the night in the gambling room, like the night in the nightclub with the dancer swaying before him, like the sudden, shocking jolt that had awakened him from the depths of hypnosis and driven him face first into a stone wall. Things like the curious viciousness of his hatred for Paul Conroe, a hate that had carried him to the ends of the earth. But now that hate lay stalemated, and new and more frightening information threatened to descend on him. What did it mean? Jeff felt the uneasiness crystallize into real fear. He broke into a run down the corridor toward his room. Fear pounded through his mind, suddenly, unreasonably. He tore open the door, fell inside, closed it tight behind him before snapping on the lights. The room was empty. The coffee-pot still stood on the little table. It was still hot, still steaming. Blackie was gone, and a cigarette still burned on the edge of the tray. He had to get out. He knew it then, knew that was at the bottom of the unreasonable fear. The bell was still clanging in the hallway, loudly piercing the still air of the room. He had to flee while he could. Instinctively, now he knew that he'd never find Paul Conroe in the center, never in a thousand years of searching. The fear grew stronger, a little voice screaming in his ear, "'Don't wait! Run! Run now, or it's too late!' He tore open his footlocker, stared at the empty hooks. The locker was cleaned out, empty of every stitch of clothing. His bag was gone, his shoes, his coat. "'It's too late! Don't wait!' His pulse pounded in his temples, and a sweat broke out on his forehead. The escalator! If he could get to it, then make the turn into the next corridor and get a jitney car. It was the only way to get out, and he had no choice. Panting, he broke out into the hall once again, ran pell-mell down the corridor toward the escalator. Then, when he was almost there, a wire cage slammed down across the corridor and blocked his path completely. Jeff stopped short his shoes scraping against the concrete floor. His heart pounded a deafening tattoo in his ears as he stared at the wire grill. 
Then he whirled and ran back down the corridor as fast as his legs would move. If he could get back to the offices, back to the main corridor before they stopped him, he could get a car there. Far ahead he saw the bright light of the main corridor. His breath came in a hoarse whine as he tried to run faster. And then, ten yards ahead, he saw another grill clank down, cutting him off, falling directly in his path. He cried out, a helpless, desperate cry. He was trapped, caught in the one length of corridor. His mind spun dizzily to Blackie. She had been gone. Where to? Where had everybody gone? He stared back, frantically jerking open doors on either side of the corridor, staring into room after room, his breath catching in his throat as he ran. All the rooms were empty. Jeff felt his mind spinning. He felt a curious inevitability, a fantastic pattern falling into shape as he stared into the empty rooms. Finally he reached his own again. Wide-eyed and panting, he threw the door open, strode in and threw himself down in the chair and waited. He did not wait long. For a few moments there was no sound. Then he heard the sounds of feet coming down the corridor. He tightened his grip on the chair arm. He wasn't thinking any longer. Cold beads of sweat stood out on his forehead as he waited, hearing the steps draw nearer. For the first time that he could remember, sheer terror crept through his mind, paralyzing him. He knew he had waited too long. His chance to jump the road was gone. There was no longer any escape. Then the door was filled by some figures. One of them was the tall, white figure of Dr. Schimmel. He walked into the room and smiled like the cat that ate the canary. Sinking down on the bed with a sigh, he was still smiling at Jeff. The girl followed him into the room. Her eyes were downcast. She tossed a little pair of ivory dice into the air and caught them as they fell. The doctor smiled and drew a crisp white paper from his pocket, began unfolding it slowly. "'A matter of business,' he said, almost apologetically. It's time we got down to business, I think. End of chapter 10